We continue our series uh, through the book of Acts, and we're looking today at Luke's short description uh, of the early church, what it looked like, how they acted, how, why they were different from the world around them. And we read in Acts 2, chapter 42 to, uh, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, the following. And they, being the early believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as our youngest child's mobility has increased, so we have an 18-month little boy at home, so have the boundaries, the amount of boundaries around our home designed to keep him safe. So, y'all, a lot of you know Sam. He's very, very busy. He has this Uh, an equal amount of energy, but also disregard for his own physical well-being. So curiosity motivates his entire existence. He runs full speed toward anything that catches his eye, except those things that are actually eye-level for him. So things like tables or chairs, and for some reason his sisters, uh, or walls, okay? He just doesn't notice those uh, most of the time. He just runs. He learned how to climb up on the couch uh, about a month ago, usually so he can sit near us, but he doesn't recognize that falling off the couch or leaping off the couch might hurt if his parents don't catch him, okay? He will touch and eat anything within reach except the food that we put in front of him. (laughs) To him, the world is new and full of delight, and he has his boundless energy. And this enthusiasm for life isn't wrong, but we love him. So to keep him safe, much of his day is spent within spaces designed to keep him out of trouble. So if we move our ottoman in the living room, uh, it sort of blocks off uh, an area where he can't really escape from. He hates it, but it's good for us, okay? good for uh, Katie's sanity especially. Uh, it means that he can stay in one place and play with his toys instead of the pots and pans in the kitchen because every cabinet at this point has childproof locks and latches and that sometimes also prevents his parents from opening those things up (laughs) keeping our youngest safe can be exhausting but we also know that all of these baby gates all of these boundaries that we've erected will one day come down the external rules that we've placed around him designed to keep him protected won't be necessary because at some point he will have enough internal knowledge to keep himself safe Right? He won't need all of those boundaries. He won't need to keep him confined to a particular place because he will have learned how to move around the house without putting himself in danger. He won't leap off the bed because he knows that that will bring pain or worse yet, time out. At least we hope that is the case. We see a similar spiritual transition in Luke's earliest description 
of the church. And it's so subtle, I think sometimes we miss it. But there is a change that happens in the early believers that have been rumored for the people of God since the days of the prophets. It helps to understand the transformation happening uh, within these believers as life before and then life after the moment of Pentecost or the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So before, let's look at before, before the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the people of God lived according to Jewish law, the guidelines that their gracious father provided through Moses. Now, in this set of rules, there God outlined clear blessings if, he, if the people followed and clear uh, warnings or curses if they uh, disobeyed. Leviticus 26, if you're interested, outlines both. It writes, If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will look on you with favor. I'll put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. It also talks about how the harvest will be fruitful and how they will be able to lie down in safety and nothing will will bother them. But the warnings are equally explicit. If you will not listen to me and so violate my covenant, then I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases that destroy your sight and sap your strength. I will set my face against you and those who hate you will rule over you. Eventually, Leviticus says their hearts would become so fearful that the sound of a windblown leaf will put them to flight. That is rough. That is what life looks like if you disobeyed the law. And in that way, the law was a bit like a contract. So long as they followed these external commands, God would bless them. Disobedience, however, would bring wrath. The law helps the people focus on the goodness of their God, and it created boundaries that ideally would have restored the spiritual connection that they lost in the garden. Sadly, the people instead wandered from their God, chose choosing paths that led to death, and ignored invitations to abundant life. Both incentives and warnings could never change the internal disposition of the human heart. Unless the sin that corrupted their souls could be removed, the children of God would be forever lost. They would fail to find their way home. They would forever live apart from the God who promised salvation, and they would never experience the restoration of the relationship that they ruined so long ago. But then Jesus died, and everything changed. The cross canceled the power of sin, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit planted God's presence within the hearts of believers. Before Pentecost, the Jewish people lived by the external boundaries of the law, rarely moving toward God on their own and never living up to their full potential as God's people. After Pentecost, believers lived by the internal intimate guidance of the Holy Spirit. Early Christians no longer needed the law to guide them because the author of that law now lived within them. The prophecy Jeremiah uh, that we find in Jeremiah 31 declared to the Israelites uh, it had actually come true when the Holy Spirit descended on the early church. I will put my law within them, Jeremiah says. I will write it on their hearts. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me 
from the least of them to the greatest. In the past, before Pentecost, God gathered his children and they continually turned away because they were enslaved to their own rebellion. But with the spirit moving inside of his children, believers were free. They were free to step not into not just a new relationship with God, but an entirely new way of living. Their relationship with God had been restored, which meant their approach to one another, to each other, and life itself, and the broken world around them had been profoundly rearranged. As we see throughout the New Testament, the early church didn't just survive, but flourish. Not just fleeing from evil, but overcoming evil with good. Again, when the believers began, right after Peter preached at Pentecost, there were maybe 3,000, 4,000 people who believed in Jesus. By the end of the third century, this obscure sort of offshoot of the Jewish faith had become the dominant faith of the entire Roman Empire. That is remarkable. And this new community had different markers. It had hallmarks that made them different. Joy, generosity, sacrifice, humble boldness, and compassion marked the life of this new community, which made a difference not just in their own lives, but the world itself. The description here then provides a model for every church that has existed since. While this community was not perfect, we see in Acts and Paul's letters that sin still caused great heartache. Luke wants us to understand the enormous potential that every church has when believers fully surrender their lives to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because what we read about here happens It has happened before, not just in the early church. It happens throughout history, and it can happen again. What we read read here happens whenever hearts are captured by the Holy Spirit. From Luke's perspective, the people of God experience three spiritual realities when the Holy Spirit moves within them. The first is this. The Holy Spirit always points back to Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit and the life of faith is to teach and remind us of what Jesus has already taught and revealed through his teaching, his ministry, but most importantly, his death. Martin Luther says, Christ says very definitely, the Holy Spirit will witness of me, of me and not of someone else. Beyond this witness of the Holy Spirit about Christ There is no sure and abiding comfort. We may be certain the Holy Spirit promotes no other doctrine, preaches neither Moses nor other laws whereby to comfort the conscience. If we are to be comforted, it can only be by the preaching of Christ's death and resurrection. This alone comforts the human soul. The early church focused on the teachings of the apostles and the breaking of bread because both pointed back to Jesus Christ. Practically, this means we can be assured that the Holy Spirit will never teach anything contrary or different to what Christ has already revealed. So if a thought comes into your head that seems contrary to the cross or opposite of what we know about in Scripture, you can be sure that it actually doesn't come 
from the Lord. All of us have thoughts like this. Sometimes they come on the lips of other people. Sometimes they are uh, spoken to us by the news about what the world is like today. Sometimes those thoughts come from within us. Maybe these thoughts say that God can't redeem our current situation, or that we don't matter, or that our value rests in some vague idea of success. But when those thoughts come, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will be there to help us remember who we really are and how deeply our God loves us. The early church's constant focus on Jesus grounded their hearts and freed them to follow God wherever he might lead next. It freed them. The Holy Spirit freed them to move into the brokenness of the world and meet it with grace, with the grace of their God. Second, the Holy Spirit establishes a new spiritual community with new patterns for human life. The word used for fellowship, which we should know in this church because we're fellowship, Presbyterian church, uh, is uh, koinonia. And in Acts uh, 2.42 points to an entirely new way of connecting with God and one another. Anglican uh, John Stott wrote that the life of the early church revolves around the common participation in God alongside one another. Recognizing the Spirit called them together for a new purpose, the people made being together a priority, not an afterthought. They understood that this new community was not a burdensome religious obligation, but a gift of grace. Here we might be encouraged. We might remember how deeply our God loves us, that we aren't alone. In response, they lived into a new reality of human connection. What united them was stronger than what used to divide them. Even the social distinctions of Roman society didn't matter among God's new community of faith. Early believers recognized the value of human life, of every human life, because Christ died for all people and so extended his love to all. The reformer Erasmus, who lived in during the Reformation, wrote, Jesus had bidden his disciples to be recognized by this special sign, that love for one another held them together. For all who had believed the gospel frequently gathered together in one place and exhorted and comforted themselves by mutual discourse. There were many, and all were admitted without respect to background or station, young, old, women, men, slaves, free, Poor, rich. Indeed, the love of Christ implanted in their hearts joined together such disparate people with so much oneness of heart, they regarded all things as common among themselves. In this community, new expressions of generosity, of wonder and joy emerged as the Spirit led the people to become more like Jesus. Their generosity with material goods, with their finances, didn't flow from some political ideology, but a genuine desire to share their blessings for the good of others and for the good of the world. Their wonder at the Spirit's activity, which included miracles by the apostles, led them deeper into worship. And just these, uh, uh, you know, five or so verses, it talks about them worshiping, I think, three times. 
it, it led them deeper into worship, which reinforced their awe at the beauty of God's love. Notice here, too, the foundational shift that these Jewish believers must have experienced. We live in a culture that assumes worship can happen where? Anywhere. Technically, wherever two or three are gathered, right? Because Jesus will be with them. But according to the law, genuine worship happened only at the temple in Jerusalem, the place where heaven and earth overlapped, the only place it overlapped. And it was clothed in precise rituals and officiated by, uh, solely by priests that devoted their lives to encounter the presence of Yahweh on behalf of the people. For Christians to bring worship home back into their normal lives reflected the belief that God's presence no longer resided in the halls of the temple, but the hearts of his people. Early believers went to the temple and worshiped, but they brought the temple home too. That is radical for that day and age. The desire to worship God became an internal desire that fled the the flames of faith. Aware of God's activity in, among, and through them, their souls also overflowed with gladness and joy, a sense of happiness that went beyond their circumstance. Perhaps this aspect uh, should surprise us most, because following Jesus at that time was neither safe nor easy. Persecution, social banishment, physical torture, death, all of those things haunted the early church. They experienced them on a fairly regular basis. But the dominant emotion among the people was not fear, but joy. John Calvin says that we must note the circumstances of time, that being surrounded with many dangers, they were merry and joyful. The knowledge of God's love towards us and the hope of his protection brings us this goodness with him, that we praise God with joyful minds no matter what the world threatens. Finally, The Holy Spirit transforms the hearts of believers for a purpose. The early church shows us and the world what happens when the Holy Spirit fills the hearts of believers. But the practical changes Luke describes here aren't designed only for the benefit of those who believe. The work of the Spirit within us works from the inside out, changing us Internally, so that our actions, our choices, our behaviors, our patterns reflect the love of God to a world desperately searching for hope in desperate need of salvation. As the Holy Spirit moves in us, we are compelled to interact with others outside of the church in ways that inevitably attract notice. The fruit of a holy life is to find favor even among strangers and those who persecute you, those who are antagonistic towards you, those who uh, don't agree with you on much, maybe anything at all. John Calvin wrote that the faithful behaved in a way that attracted attention. The same goes for us. When the Holy Spirit takes control, the world eventually starts asking questions about the people who follow Jesus. 
That is how, as what we see in the early church. And mainly those people ask why. Why does this group of people operate and behave so differently than other people? Why do they love with such fearlessness? How can they have such joy in dark times? From where does their compassion come and why does it never seem to run dry? The answer is found in Jesus who came to redeem and restore the whole world to make all things new and welcome his children back into God's kingdom. Notice, too, the, the main effect of the Spirit's activity within the life of the early church. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, the world around the church noticed that these people were different, that something unique was animating their souls. They noticed that they were different. The church grew because the early believers offered nothing but the hope of the world and made it real by how they lived and spoke and loved. This is important for us as a small church. The early church didn't offer the best programs for kids and students or young professionals. They didn't have the newest technology in their sanctuary. They didn't change the music necessarily. What they offered to a world that was dying was life. Every church that faithfully follows Jesus does this. Church, our lives are transformed by the Spirit in the same exact way the Spirit moved among believers in the early church. We are still free today to embody our faith and be the kind of community that demands to be noticed. And all we have to do is do what they did back then. Keep our eyes on Jesus and let his spirit change us from the inside out. Hallelujah. Amen.